You're listening to Youth Ministry Maverick, a podcast about mold-breaking methods to invest in the next generation of the church. Here's your host, Jeff Harding. Hello, hello, everybody. This is Jeff. Welcome back to Youth Ministry Maverick. You're listening to episode 37, The In-Between Place. This is a special bonus Friday episode of the podcast. Uh, We are in the middle of our Connecting with Parents series, and the final part of that series will air this Tuesday. But today, uh, we have a special interview with my friend Kat Armstrong. She just wrote a book, and she talks about that book and the implications it has for us in ministry, but especially women in ministry. So female youth workers, I hope that this benefits you a lot. Enjoy the interview. Kat, I am so happy to have you here in the podcast with me. Thanks for making time. Uh, For those who might be a little bit unfamiliar, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, Jeff. I'm so glad to spend some time with you. You know, when we met, I guess it was last year at Mm -hmm. a speaking engagement, we didn't have, you know, I was rushed, trying to rush home. So thank you for this opportunity. It's really fun to get some time and talk with you. Um, well, I am a Mexi German speaker, Bible teacher, and author of two books, and spent most of my time in ministry building, starting and building a national nonprofit called the Polish Network. And we share the gospel with professional women. We help working women connect their faith and their work together and do that in really safe places where they can build authentic community. So I started, I launched that 12 years ago and it's grown and now I've handed the baton over the day to day. So I spend most of my time teaching the Bible, speaking and writing. Very cool. Very fun. Uh, Yes, it was a lot of fun having you uh, at that retreat. I can't believe it's coming up on a year now. It seems like it was longer ago in some respects. And then it seems like it was like last month in some ways. Yeah, I think like emotionally speaking, it seems like a decade ago that we were, you know, getting hundreds of people gathered together, all bouncing around and shouting out loud without masks. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. I I miss those. Um, I miss Me those too. Um, well, for today's episode, uh, we are talking about uh, your latest book that dropped earlier this month, uh, The In-Between Place, Where Jesus Changes Your Story. Uh, first of all, uh, I enjoyed the connection with your personal experiences that you share in the book. Um, you know, an obvious reason for that is vulnerability really provides the reader with authenticity from the author, uh, demonstrating that none of us have everything all together and figured out. And secondly, uh, for me personally, it was meaningful to have that connection and continuation of um, the, I had the privilege to hear you when you spoke at our retreat last year and you told um, a good bit about your life story. Uh, so I'm sure that is a big part of your answer to this question, but I would love for you to tell us why you decided to write this book. What were the motivating factors of sharing this content and message with others? Yeah, you know, when things just align, Jeff, and I'm talking about as a, as a student of the word and a Bible nerd, I know that you are theologically speaking, you know, when something aligns with something you're already reading and studying about, and then your life experience seems to amplify or be emblematic of exactly what you're studying and reading. And then you go to the text, the scriptures, and you think, 
oh my goodness, this is like, it's, it's all, it's all fitting together. It's as if the Holy Spirit is very intentionally trying to communicate to me through the theology books, through my personal experience and through the scripture. And I, I'm making those in order, not by priority, it actually be flipped. And you know that, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it was a combination of things. I I've been grieving the loss of my father um, he died by suicide. It was very tragic, a culmination of his lifelong struggle with mental illness that was untreated and um, dependence on alcohol and in some cases drugs. It just, you know, a very intense situation. And I, I was grieving that. I'm still grieving that, if I'm honest. And I think I probably will be the rest of my life. So this, this tragedy um, made me desperate for Christ's presence that really I connect most to Christ through his word. And, um, so that was going on in the backdrop. And then I took a trip to Israel with a group of women to study women in the Bible under Reverend Jackie, Dr. Jackie Reese, who's one of my favorite Bible teachers. And I remember we were standing in modern day Samaria. We had just come off the bus. We could hear bombs going off in Gaza because it was independence day that for, for, um, the capital. And it, it was just a really weird setting, but we stepped off this bus and overlooked modern day Samaria. And, you know, I'm trying to take in geographically, where are we? What, what are the stories in the Bible that happened here? And so our tour guide, Ronnie said, you know, we are seeing in modern day Samaria, this is where the woman at the wells conversation would have happened. And then Dr. Reverend Jackie Reese got up and she taught a message on Dinah. Because Dinah's message also happened in Samaria, but more specifically, both women's stories happened in a place called Shechem or Sikar, depending on what testament you're studying this geographical place. And I remember for a minute, I just paused, Jeff, because, you know, the tour guide sat down and Jackie kept talking and her sermon on Dinah was amazing. But I kept thinking, I can't believe both these women's stories. I want to go to the tour bus and I want to put the two stories side by side. And then I started thinking, I wonder, because you and I know that settings in the Bible communicate something even greater than just a place on a map. Sometimes they can be symbolic of what God's trying to do. Um, What usually happens in a place or how he wants to redeem what, what the narrative is for that place. And I went ahead and just looked at all the times that this place, Shechem, Sikar in Samaria happens in the Bible. And it just, it showed me what a in-between place this Mm. place was on the map between Judea and Galilee. Theologically speaking, it showed me the, you know, Jesus was really in between a really fruitful part of his ministry and being received um, in Galilee. And so I just, you know, it all kind of culminated for me. So while I was grieving what felt like an in-between place, will I ever move on from this grief? Will I feel joy again? Um, which are really normal feelings when someone's experienced something so traumatic. Uh, it all kind of, it all kind of culminated. Yeah. I love that perspective. Uh, yeah. Uh, so this summer originally, uh, I was going to take my juniors and seniors to Israel. Um, and for obvious reasons that fell through and that got pushed back a little bit. I'm still planning to go, but Whenever I hear someone's experience over there, I love it because just, you know, very similar to the written word, everyone's experience is a little bit different and yet reinforces the same 
awe and wonder of what being there does to your faith and your understanding of scripture and really understanding what it was like for Jesus to take on flesh and walk among us and knowing that he's God and having these experiences and specifically with women. Um, And uh, the story of Jesus engaging with that woman at the well in John 4, that's the biblical source material for your book. Uh, It's one that theologians and Bible scholars highlight in various ways. Uh, Those who lean heavily on the conservative end of the spectrum might shed light on the promiscuous behavior and actions that Jesus points out about the woman. However, I and many others agree with what you just said. Your conclusion at the best overall understanding of this encounter contextually is looking at the setting, right? Because everything about this encounter leading up to it is an incredible departure from what the cultural and religious expectations were in that day. Um, You highlighted it a little bit in your book, and I'm glad that you emphasize it because really Samaritans weren't just people who were kind of on the side, like they were actively hated and looked at as less than in every sense of the word. Um, And when Jesus uh, went out of his way um, to do that, he wasn't just trying to be a contrarian first century hipster, right? (laughs) Uh, It's clear that he took a route through Samaria that was unusual because usually you go, you went around it. So he went and took a route he didn't have to take at an unusual time of the day um, to purposefully meet with and spend time talking to this Samaritan woman, as I mentioned, who was certainly considered less than, and that's probably an understatement. Uh, And so Kat, how should this example that you pick apart and really expound upon in your book, among other powerful ones like Dinah made in scripture, how should this example influence the way women especially view themselves in light of their creator and sustainer? Yeah, I think like any other biblical character, Jeff, we can find part of our own story in theirs. And this is not wrong. We we know that the biblical narrative is supposed to shape and form our own stories. And that in many ways, the story itself provides opportunity for us to step into it and go, oh, wait, I'm learning something about myself while I'm intentionally learning about God. And so I think when we look at the woman at the well story, we need to remember she was nameless, but that Jesus knew her name. Hmm. Well, I, you know, we, we'll know that in glory and I can't wait to ask her, what is your first and last name? Yeah. Um, but Jesus knew it. And I think for women listening, sometimes they need to be reminded that if they feel invisible, marginalized, overlooked, silenced, belittled, um, discarded, and she was definitely discarded from society, this woman, that we can find ourselves in her story and that. I think one thing we can think about is that Jesus knew her name, even though no one else did. I think we can think about the fact that he intentionally approached her when we feel isolated or alone or the odd woman out in the room in ministry, whatever it may be, that we can take confidence that Jesus comes intentionally to us. Um, I think we need to consider the fact that this is the longest recorded conversation in the new Testament. Mm. And, you know, the amount of words that we are willing to spend on someone often communicates how valuable we think the conversation is, how important it is to have it. You know, if you're going to send a two second text message, as opposed to a four page written letter to someone, you know, when something's important. 
Yeah. And Jesus seems to use his word count to communicate how important conversations are with women. Um, like you mentioned, he crossed several boundaries, ethnic, social, religious, gender. Um, he really overturned a lot of the social norms. And I'm in no way proposing that we um, just disregard any of societal norms. But I think we can learn when it is appropriate to overstep some, some traditional boundaries that aren't necessarily biblical boundaries. And Jesus he is relentless, you know, from Genesis to Revelation to include and elevate and amplify the voices of women in the story of redemption. It's it's even in the book of John, you know, so the whole my whole book, The In-Between Place is about John chapter four. But if we widen the scope a little bit and think about just John's gospel in general, the way he positions the woman at the well in John four, Martha of Bethany in John 11 and Mary Magdalene in John 20, those three women alone are not they're not the only women highlighted in John's gospel, but they are exemplary examples of female disciples that in some ways need to contrast some of the religious male elites of the time. And what Jesus is trying to show us is that anyone can have faith in him. And this is the gospel message, right? But sometimes the marginalized and the underdog or the outsiders prove that point more effectively because it's not what we expect. And I think you and I probably both had Daryl Bach in seminary and he says something all the time. If the scriptures catch you out, catch you off guard, or you go, wait, that's interesting. Why is he talking to this nameless Samaritan woman alone? Why is he having the longest recorded conversation with her? Why does he reveal himself as I am to her in, in a way that echoes what he did with Moses, you know, which echoes what's about to happen with the apostle Peter? Like, how profound is this conversation? Um, I That catches me out. And so I did a deep dive into that. But I think for women, how should this influence the way we view Christ's inclusion of us in ministry to join our brothers, you know, in the blessed alliance of ministering together? I think it should motivate us. I think it should, you know, at the end of the story, um, she has an unusual commissioning. You know, Jesus reveals himself to her and then she goes back to her town and lots of people get saved because of her testimony she would have been an incredible witness on several accounts. You know, she should not have been listened to or believed, especially based on her lifestyle, her gender, her race. Her, you know, I could go on and on about that. And yet she's an extremely effective um, first evangelist for Jesus. And her, Jeff, her, her testimony is so pathetic. You know, it's a question, <laughs> you know, she says, could this be the Messiah? He's told me everything I've ever done. I'm paraphrasing there. Please don't quote me on that. But you know what I'm saying? You know, she, um, so I think that this should be an encouragement to men and women that are in ministry, working with youth, discipling leaders in youth groups to think about how effective we can be for the kingdom, even when uh, we aren't necessarily the most credible witness, haven't had a whole lot of time to study the scriptures. She just goes with the message she's been given, which she knows that Jesus is not just a prophet anymore. He's Messiah. She she was waiting on him. Um, so I think uh, the last thing I'll say on this, because you can tell it's a soapbox, is that she, Jesus positions himself 
um, the same way he does at the Sermon on the Mount and after he ascends to sit at the right hand of the Father. So his his posture sitting by the well is, is emblematic that the great sage, the great prophet is here to teach us um, truth and reveal it almost like the you know, arbitrating, like Moses was arbitrating the law, you know, from the mountain. And she, that's the conversation she wants to have with Jesus. What mountain are we supposed to worship on? And so I think for women listening, are we asking deep theological questions the way this woman was? And are they the kind of questions that could have real implications on our worldview and how we, our hermeneutic for the scriptures and how we minister to the youth? Yeah, it could. It could be a paradigm shift. It was for her. And yet she was brave enough to ask these deep questions. I think women should also be encouraged that Jesus was willing to have this conversation with her and entrust her with things that he hadn't told anybody yet. And she believes him, you know, so I think this should be encouragement to men and women. Yeah, great. Yeah. As you were talking about that, I was thinking back to yesterday, talking with some of, uh, my church's staff, uh, we were talking about Sermon on the Mount and you bring that up. And I love how he begins that sermon because it's highlighting people that are so less than and looked down upon. And he doesn't highlight them to say we should have pity on them. He highlights them to say, not only are they just as good and equal and loved as you are, but their attitude reflects what the kingdom is about. And over the last several years, um, you know, we have people like Beth Moore, Amy Bird, yourself, and uh, others who are really helping bring to light with other men and women, theologians and pastors, what should be at the heart of the discussion with women in ministry or even men in ministry. You know, of course, with anything online, there are fierce, heartless debates, but there's such an important example being shared in the dialogue that hopefully uh, people can really see. And uh, I think this great example in John four, a few other churches that I've been on staff at or or helped out with has come back to this passage in John four. And it's just so captivating. And because of the woman's place in that society and everything that makes it more captivating, but I feel like the setting of it and the intentionality of Jesus and how he met with her would be the same if it was someone like Zacchaeus or you have Matthew, a tax collector, who's one of his disciples. And you're just like, are you sure you want this guy? You know, (laughs) Um, and you have uh, essentially homeless people, shepherds being the first told about the birth of Christ. And uh, of course, um, we have Mary Magdalene running to tell the disciples he is risen. And uh, I love how these examples throughout scripture, uh, and I love how Peter mentions in his first epistle, how the writers of scripture knew that they were writing for our benefit, for the future of yeah. those who are reading this. And yeah. it's really a good call out to humble ourselves, to break us of our pride, of our stubbornness, and to really break ourselves from that independence of God and learn that being dependent on him is where we should be. And it's how we grow and it's for our good in so many ways. And, you know, I love seeing how um, a lot of the conversations recently around women in ministry and men in ministry highlight the importance of gifts, um, how it doesn't matter 
who you are. God gives his gifts to multiple people wherever they're at for his will, for his kingdom. I think one really good example of that, unfortunately, in suffering, but it's still a really powerful example, the genocide in Rwanda. Our church has been really tied into the ministry um, by Dr. Celestin Musakura um, Alarm, and it was founded after that to bring peacemaking and reconciliation in that country. And you have at least one, if not two, generations of men wiped out in that. And we've spent several years, both in Tanzania and Rwanda, going over to teach uh, conferences, training pastors. And over the last several years in Rwanda, obviously, there have been conferences for men and for women because you have churches being led by women because there are no men around. But also, I think it's highlighting to them that, hey, God's gifted me with this and I'm as capable as leading the church, being a shepherd, right? Pastor is not really an office in scripture. It's a spiritual gift. And so even if the words of the Samaritan woman in going, there's not really a well put together, articulate sermon message, but it's a powerful message based on not her words, but on the subject she is talking about on the savior. And that's what gets people listening and their attention and then thinking about maybe this is who we're actually waiting for. Um, and that, you know, that, that just stands out to me in this and knowing your story and seeing your example. And I love the affirmation of that we see in scripture and in sisters in ministry like yourself. And it's really encouraging. Thank you, Jeff. That means a lot. I mean, I think that Jesus would entrust her with these truths and then welcome the opportunity to disciple the people she shares the gospel with um, should really be an example, almost like um, the way it's supposed to be, not the only way. Right. So we have so many other examples in the scriptures of men and women of all social status. I mean, it's so cool how God really can use anybody. Uh, But if we're talking specifically about women in ministry, we go to the scriptures and look at how how did God use women, utilize their gifts to build his kingdom. And then I think the second question we can ask ourselves without having to mess with any convictions we have about roles, limitations, titles, any of those things. I'm asking really basic questions. Mm. You know, how did God utilize women in the scriptures to build his kingdom? And then my second question is, do we still do that today? You know, if that woman, if the woman at the well was around and the same conversation happened, would we believe her? Um, would we venerate her and give her a place of honor in our history books or would she be overlooked or rejected uh, or unheard? And I think we can do this with every woman in the Bible that, that serves God faithfully. How did God use her? Do we allow women to do that still? And at, at the same level, maybe it does. It's not for me personally, it's not necessarily about title or role or theological conviction. It's really that basic. And I think we see that. Um, in places like you said, Tanzania and uh, all the places that alarm works where Celestin has worked and Celestin would be the first to tell you, you know, you raise a woman in that country, you raise the country. Yeah. Um, and so, and, you know, I hear what he's saying on that. I love that. I'm, I'm of the mind that you and I, Jeff, or when Cameron and I partner up at my church with the youth group, that this alliance we create the male and female, you know, 
um, partnership for the gospel work is really where we find the spirit is so active. And so, of course, women um, after the genocide will lead their churches because someone has to. And ultimately, the goal would be men and women leading together in places where they're gifted. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, In our image, male and female. And it really comes back to that and Jesus quoting that uh, as well and pointing out the significance of that. I was able to talk with Rebecca Carroll a few months ago about how women starting in adolescence, but certainly earlier, should be encouraged to use the gifts God gave them to bring him glory and to edify the church. And I want to ask you a similar but distinct aspect about that with women in in the church. Uh, We don't want to give all the specifics away because we want people to buy the book and read it, but what are some good application points female youth workers would gain from your book to minister to their students and male and female, but perhaps the female students in particular. What do you think? Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, jokingly, Jeff, this is a great setup, right? For me to unflinchingly plug my book. Yes. Go buy it. Youth leaders, buy it for a whole small, small group. The discussion questions will really help you work through this woman's story. And I would challenge both men and women that are youth workers to think when is the last time your youth groups utilized curriculum or a book written by a woman? Hmm. And if that hasn't happened in a while, now's a great time and definitely start with the in-between place for sure, because both men and women are going to love to read it. I think two things, Jeff, I'm thinking of the youth workers who are thinking about how can I encourage the, the young women in my groups? And then I'm thinking about youth workers themselves, youth leaders, youth pastors that are female um, that are partnering with their brothers to, to raise up this next generation of disciples. So first I would say to the youth workers that want to go back to the young women in their group and remind them of how God utilizes women, how important they are in the kingdom of God. This is not in my book, but what I would say is to remind them that God loves using young women to change the world. It, all we have to do is look at the Old Testament and, and take a look at Queen Esther and her age and her influence and how her obedience in in a time of great fear and at potentially the cost of her own life, she changed the course of a nation. And so God is in the business of using young women to change the world. I think we have to look at Mary of Nazareth and, you know, she is potentially one of the greatest disciples that Jesus has ever had, certainly his first disciple. Um, and scholars that have no, no, you know, no, no dog in the fight for the role of women in ministry will tell you that Mary of Nazareth's prayer that we see in Luke's gospel, the Magnificent, is one of the greatest faith-filled songs we've ever heard since Miriam or Deborah. But, you know, you look at this young woman um, who is in the face of, again, just like um, Esther, some really cruel militarized um, things going on around her and, Uh, worried for her own life, definitely the safety of her baby, and yet is faithful to God. And so I think if you are listening and you work with young women in youth groups, remind them of these stories and say, look how God can use young women to um, change the course of history. And I don't want to make it all about these grand, you know, grand plans to change the world. But in some ways, we have to know we, we, for such a time as this, each one of us are here. And like our brothers in the faith, we are accountable to live up into our calling. So that's the first thing I would say um, to youth 
leaders. I would say, man, Jeff, if you, <laughs> I would say you are going to have to be extraordinary. Women know this instinctually. Um, when you were the first to lead or the first to speak from front or the first to pray at a youth meeting or um, the first to share the devotional at the staff meeting or um, the first to speak truth to power or whatever it may be. What I have seen in 20 years of women's ministry and certainly working with youth leaders is that you will have to be extraordinary. Your, your brothers may have, and this may sound um, a little harsh, so bear with me, but they may have more opportunity to be mediocre or um, to do things the wrong way and have a little bit more grace extended to them. In my personal experience, I have found that women must be in leadership head and shoulders above, above reproach, um, more convinced that what they're saying is true, um, go even deeper in their resources to be cited because like the woman at the well, um, their voices are not always believed. And so that's okay. That is okay. And that, that isn't even necessarily the worst thing that's going to happen to a female youth leader, because in many ways it makes us go deeper in the scriptures, be more connected to Jesus, make sure our character is above reproach. These, these can be used for our good. Um, so I would say that, and I would say by reading the in-between place, if for any reason you sense you need God to come close to you, to speak to you in a time of liminal space, uh, stuckville, <laughs> concerned about your future, this is definitely the book for you. But there's a chapter at the very end, Jeff, and I think you read it where I, I talk about the three women that John highlights. And I talk about... Um, how much I love Star Wars. And I know we could get in a debate about the movies and which one is the best, but of course, because of how much I love emboldening women, I loved The Last Jedi. I loved Rey defeating the Sith Lord. Sorry for the spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, you really should repent and believe. <laughs> but, you know, you've got Rey at the end of that movie and she's flat on her back fought the hardest battle of her life and doesn't want to get up, doesn't know if she has the strength to get up. And yet she hears all those voices from the past, those echoes that say, I'm with you, Ray. Um, and she feels the strength, the solidarity of people that have gone before her with the same mission. And I don't get my theology from Star Wars, but I tell this illustration to female youth leaders to remind them we have in the scriptures echoes of faithful revolutionary female figures that have worked to serve God and that he has utilized. And so we can stand in solidarity with them when we are questioning our place in service to the king. Um, we can lean on their voices and their stories. And I think a great place to start would be that chapter in my book that talks about the woman at the well, Mary, um, Martha of Bethany and Mary Magdalene, because those three women are exemplary disciples. And yet each of their stories show how imperfect they were, how they fumbled believing God, um, how unlikely they were to serve him. And God still uses them. So I think that should be a great encouragement to your female listeners. Yeah, those are fantastic. Uh, one of my favorite uh, props at DTS, Dr. Spiegel, I remember he said something about there was some point in church history that was crazy. 
And he said, this point in church history was like the end of Star Wars Episode 2. It was chaos. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to like this guy. We've talked a lot about the very important parts of this book that are obviously uh, prevalent in women in ministry and really all of us and in, in, in how God can use us. But the very title makes you think of between a rock and a hard place. And after the year 2020, a few weeks ago, um, you know, there there is um, a lot that can uh, be added to the conversation of where is God in the midst of my hardship and suffering? And uh, our church is going through um, Job right now. And in a few weeks, um, when we go on our next winter retreat, which is still happening, you can pray for us, uh, we are talking about Job. It's always good to have more thoughts. And as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, seeing the vulnerability of the author's personal experiences to resonate with where God has you and to know that he has others there as well. And he's using them for his glory and their good. And he's doing that for you as well. That is a really key part of this book to be able to know um, that God is sovereign and to know that um, it's okay to be angry and upset. God can take it. Um, and to have others, as Ecclesiastes says, to help you up and to be there to walk with you. That certainly resonates with teenagers, no matter what the year. Well, Kat, I want to thank you again for joining me. This was a great conversation. Um, I have an Amazon link in the show notes where you can purchase this book. Um, but tell us where people can follow and connect with you elsewhere. Yeah, I I love getting to connect with people through my website. It's catarmstrong.com. So you can find a hope guide there. If you need to pray through 30 days of hope, you can find my books and information about where I'm speaking next. And then I, I live on Instagram. So I check my DMs. If you're not weird and creepy, I will... <laughs> respond back to you more than likely. It might take me a while, but I'm not really active on Facebook and I don't look at my DMs on Twitter. But if you want to talk to me on Instagram, uh, go find me over there. It's Kat Armstrong one. Great, great. Very good stuff. Um, well, I'll be praying for you and your ongoing ministry. Um, thanks again for hopping on. Thank you for what you're doing, the ministry that you're doing. And uh, yeah, this was great. So thanks again, Kat. Thanks, Jeff. That concludes today's episode. Thanks again to Kat for hopping on the podcast with me. The link to buy her new book and the links to her podcast and website are in the show notes and the guest page on our website. That website is youthministrymaverick.com. You can catch all of our previous episodes, a comprehensive list of our guests and their bios, uh, you can find organizations to help you in ministry, and you can buy some merchandise from the online store, which will help fund the podcast to continue its work. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening to it, and share this episode with those in youth ministry, especially those who are ministering to our ladies. We really appreciate reviews. So if you leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, take a screenshot before you hit submit, send it to me, and I'll send you a personal thank you card with some exclusive merchandise. So please leave one of those if you appreciate our content. Our Connecting with Parents series wraps up on Tuesday. 
So until then, thanks for listening. Adios.